From WFPL, this is Unbound, fiction on the radio. I'm Erin Keene. In each episode, we'll hear stories on a theme from two different writers. On today's episode, we're looking at the objects that define people and their place in time. In our first story, we go back to the 1960s to eastern Kentucky in an odd little house in the country with no right angles. This is Jacinda Townsend reading Rhombus. Back when Andre's daddy died, she cried like a white girl, with that look on her like she just left all of us and weren't coming back. Her mama ain't cried one drop, and she gave Audrey tissue to fresh up her face, but Audrey pushed it away, just let them tears roll down her face and then down her chin to salt up the neck of her sweater. What really did it is when she bit her lip, just like a white girl, in a way that said, this'll hurt me forever, and I'm just gonna let it. Like her mind weren't ground down by balcony sitting and back door entering and settlement cheating and other general white folk treatment. Like her mind was free enough with time enough that it could skip around in white girl spaces and just grieve. Like she ain't have to have the same stone cold heart as everybody else out here under God's gaze trying to scrape up two nickels. And that's when I knew Audrey thought she was better than the rest of us because she couldn't stay cool at a funeral. And then there was her whole to-do about that house out in the country, which anybody else would have given their eye tooth to live in. Out there on that meadow, she didn't last one week. Caroline, you got to come see this mess, she told me. Me, tossing out dead mice in the morning and raising myself up ladders to patch shingles on my grandmama's roof, and her, complaining about an upstairs, downstairs dream. Her mom had moved them out there with big-bellied Mr. Barber, who'd been watching Denatha for years. Miss Ora Ray down 7th Street finally passed on, though Denatha celebrated so much in the three days after she was too drunk to make it to the lady's funeral. And since she didn't have a night job no more and no excuses neither, Mr. Barber said why don't she just move on in with him. Mr. Barber's people in Indiana in the house written business, and he got more money than he know what to do with know-how, so he started himself a tobacco farm and built a house whatever corner is seven degrees off. Seven degrees, he explained to us when I finally got the time to go out there and see for myself. Seven is a powerful number, he said. It may and it may not be, but I was studying them wood floors, sanded clean as limestone without a knot anywhere. Them windows in the front room, big enough to let the whole day through. The three climbing stones of the walkway carried in from the Camargo Quarry by Mr. Barber himself and laid into the hill up to the yard at an 83-degree angle from the road. Denatha moved them in there and out of Grandpa Martin's house thinking peculiar meant fine. Audrey's mama believes deeply in fineness, too. But them corners upset Audrey something fierce. Look at this, she said to me in a parlor that was a trapezoid. Mr. Barber had been bailing all morning and was asleep on the couch, looking forty ways to gruesome, with his eyes half open and drool running all out his mouth. This is as crazy as the day is long, she said. Asleep, Mr. Barber couldn't fight her on what she was saying, even with his mouth wide open. And anyway, the house was awful unsettling. Clearly, she said, he don't want me in his house. She took me from room to slanted room, felt like standing sideways in a milk carton. Her mama loved it. She loved them wood columns staggered by seven degrees on that big old front porch and them stair steps that rose to an angle so they landed seven degrees left of where they took off. But Audrey couldn't see the point. The point seemed to be to set her off. Mr. Barber built this house before he even knew you, I told her, but she shook her head. 
I'm out as soon as I get me some bread. Me and you can go to Lexington and find us a couple of city boys. I just been swallowing Tyrone Boyd's tongue out behind the colored store, and some folk didn't have to go all the way to no city to find them a good man, I wanted to tell her. But looking like she did, like Poindexter, it didn't seem right to say. I'll come visit you, I told her. Of course, it weren't just the crooked rooms, or Mr. Barber looking like a ghoul when he slept, which was just about always, or even the smell of cow dung from his tobacco field. Mr. Barber done changed her mama, too, to something fake and phony dripping that jangled its bracelets when shaking hands with strangers and used a voice like Sherbert when it said how do, and Angie weren't never going to be happy about that. Long about the time they moved, Miss Tallulah Gorton over to the AME stroked up and knocked out the whole life side of her body. Audrey started to play for her on Sundays, and so when they left her granddaddy's house, they strapped that big old piano on the truck with them. Took four little hungry men from Shake Rag to scoot and push that big piano out the house, and when it landed down on the porch steps, you could hear the sound of all 88 of them coils banging at once. The noise sent Grandmama run into the window. She looked down the street and said, A piano nice is that way about six times what one of them little men do. She made me go out to the front porch to watch. Mr. Barber standing next to the trunk with his chest puffed up like the King Kentucky. Audrey's granddaddy standing on the porch with his lip poked out like they was sawing off his arm. But then once the piano got to the new house, with Audrey hollering to put it on an inside wall to keep the dew out of its guts, Mr. Barber went sour. Can't stand to hear it, he told the men down to the tin cup. Works my nerves. She plays a little nub of the song without finishing, or she goes down the same piece of road over and over. It was a family by the name of Simmons what lives out by Mr. Barber. They was renting a little shack on his property what used to be a curing house. Didn't even have no plumbing, even. But them Simmonses seemed so low down and trampy we figured they didn't mind, even if the mama did have three childrens to wash and cook for. They lived all over everywhere, it was said, and Oval Murden told us he'd beat the father once in a card game all the way over in West Virginia. It was said that the father, we weren't sure he could rightly be called the husband, shaved his head every time they moved, and by the time it grew out again, he done ruined his reputation in the new county. The oldest girl, Ruth, was in our class at school, and she bragged about all the places they done lived and all the things they done seen, said they used to live in a big mansion in Lexington and once ate dinner with Sammy Davis, Jr. She told us all the details of it, down to how the color of Sammy's fake eye was a little lighter than the color in his real one, and she built the lie up so pretty you didn't want to break it down yourself. But then we saw her mama down to the colored store, dressed in somebody else's skirt she'd unstole out the trash, with its old elastic hanging off her belly so she'd had to knot it on the side of her waist. She slumped her shoulders when she walked and spoke so low Mr. Burnett had to keep yelling at her to tell him again what she needed. Sack of flour, she'd say, and you could hear the tears in her voice. We knew such a person as that ain't never shared candied bacon with no movie star. Well, after I started going with Ralph, O'Poindexter ended up hanging tight for a spell with Ruth Simmons. Ruth couldn't hardly read her speller at school, and she was just as confounded as anybody else when Audrey opened her mouth and started talking about all them books she ordered through the mail. But they was the only two colored girls out on that particular country road, so Ruth would come sit on Mr. Barber's porch and play checkers with Audrey in the afternoon. 
Ruth told Audrey all her lies, and Audrey told Ruth all her truths, not knowing that Ruth came to school and retold every single bit of it. It was Ruth who told us that Audrey's own mama eventually turned sour on her piano playing, asked her not to play lesson Mr. Barber was out the house, but then he started complaining he could hear it when he was in the field picking tobacco. His hired hands hummed the pieces of songs while Audrey played, Ruth told us, and finished a cappella when she stopped, and generally made things worse in Mr. Barber's head. Denatha had them four skinny men come back out to the meadow and scoot and pull the piano back onto the track. Every single one of Audrey's other valuables fit in a big paper sack from the colored store, and Ruth said Audrey threw that in the bed of the truck and then climbed up there herself and started playing her piano, all loud and happy, just to get under Mr. Barber's teeth. He pushed his hands in his pockets and started whistling and shuffling and jangling change and generally trying to ignore her, but she stood straight up in the back of the truck and played even louder, put her foot up on the high register and beat on the black keys with the toe of her shoe. They started the truck, but even with all that jumping and bumping over that dirt road, she didn't miss a beat. She played all the way into town, leaning on the everlasting arms. Then four skinny men sang with her. Then they scooted and pulled that piano back into her granddaddy's house, and her granddaddy stood there flashing his false teeth, handing out five-dollar bills. Two kinds of people, and some of them stand on their feet, he was saying. I was walking home from the fruit market when I saw all that commotion. She told me howdy, said she was moving back to Queen Street, told me she couldn't decide whether it was a battle she'd done won or lost. According to Ruth, she did go back to spend the night with her mama on weekends, but once the piano was gone, Mr. Barber wanted it still quiet in the house, told Denatha to tell Audrey she wasn't to leave her room while he was napping. She had a mite pretty little room, with the wood floors bleached to pink, a strong cane chair, and even a writing desk for Audrey to get her lessons, but seemed like sitting around looking at the nails in the wall made her feel like Rapunzel. Ruth told us one Saturday, Audrey walked down to get a glass of milk, and Denatha met her at the icebox. Denatha had a glass of whiskey in one hand and a wet dish rag on the other, Audrey told Ruth. Denatha had water fighting to stay in her eyes and a layer of flush under her chinks. What you trying to do to us, she said, and she slapped Audrey so hard with the dish rag that Mr. Barber woke himself up and ran in the kitchen. Audrey and Janatha stared each other down, altogether ignoring him. Audrey blinked first, though, and when she felt that one tear dripping down the side of her face, she ran out the front door, clear back to her granddaddy's house. Four miles and she ain't even stopped to catch her breath. She played at church that Sunday with a welt on her face, but the next weekend, she went back to stay with her mama again anyway. Of course, she didn't have no bed when she got back, and no dresser neither, on account of her mama done moved all her furniture out to the barn. Where Audrey's bed should have been, it was a little crib, painted pink and set over a pedestal. In front of the window where Audrey looked out and dreamed that the meadow was an ocean rolling her straight to Paris, Denatha done put a rocker chair with the outlines of baby ducks carved into its back. Audrey stood in the middle of the floor and watched the room, and her mama stood in the door and watched her watch it. We can make you a pallet downstairs in the parlor, her mother said. You're going to be a big sister. A what? Denatha blinked and then smiled. Her little nose went up and down one time like a rabbit's. Mr. Barber and I are expecting, she said. Ain't you kind of old to have a baby? Audrey asked her. 
and then it was Denatha's turn to blink first. She smoothed her dress down over her flat belly. I ain't had my ministration for three months now, she said. Ever think you might just be going through the change of life? You'd think Audrey would have been happy, since it meant Mr. Barber'd marry her mama, and they'd be living out there in that big old house for perpetuity, but Audrey'd always been her mama's one and only baby, even if being Denatha's baby ain't meant much, and now her mama had two more, one on the way and another already sleeping downstairs on the couch. Ruth said Audrey sat herself down on the rocker, hugged her own neck, and got to going back and forth real fast. Said Audrey got to thinking about the last time she seen her daddy, how he hugged her and her mama too, too tight, how he jumped on that green army bus and told them out the window that everything would work out they'd seen. Audrey heard him tell it so many times to his dinner plate. He'd come back to Kentucky and make a doctor, just like Sam French, and then they'd have all that money in a big house somewhere. When I heard Ruth tell it, I remembered for myself how happy Audrey had been when her daddy told her all that at the dinner table. It'd been enough to make her eat her liver. Now, of course, her daddy's dead and gone, and all she has is Grandpa Martin, who's going deaf and more and more can't hear what she's saying no ways. She had me, but now I got Ralph. She's got her piano, but music just travels. Well, listen, she said then to Denatha, up in that pretty room what used to be hers. The rocker chair had made so much noise against the floorboards that it had woke Mr. Barber, who was stamping around the kitchen, slamming the lid to the bread box. He turned up the radio real loud, so Lowell Fulson was shouting, Reconsider, baby, up the stairs at them. They could smell the cinnamon what was boiling round the sweet potatoes all mixed up with the vinegar bubbling up through the greens. Y'all have fun with that baby. If you need somebody to mind it, don't call me. You won't be able to. I'm leaving town. Ruth said, I don't know where she thinks she's going, and she sucked her teeth like the business she'd just finished putting out in the street had left off some bad smell. I wanted to tell Ruth, don't doubt Audrey. Look at her old daddy. Them Martins is a little bit like wild birds. You can't never know where one of them's going to fly off to next. Jacinda Townsend's first novel, Saint Monkey, is forthcoming from W.W. Norton. Coming up, we travel in a white Chevy Nova to Astoria, Queens, 1979. This is Unbound from WFPL. Thanks for listening to Unbound. You can find out more about the authors and music you hear in the show, and you can let us know what you think at WFPL.org. Welcome back to Unbound. Today, stories about objects that define us. A grandmother travels from Bombay to New York to look after her granddaughters for the summer. Here's Neela Vaswani with Five Objects in Queens. White Chevy Nova, circa 1979, Astoria, Queens. They use the back seat for misdemeanors. The eldest, Rita, smoked cigarettes there and hid lipstick under the floor mat. Rita's little sister, Priyanka, rolled up the windows stretched out on the cushy red leather smelling of rotten french fries and incense and attempted to sing like Aretha Franklin. Their grandmother, Dadi, surreptitiously chucked her insulin in the neighbor's trash can and hunkered there to eat half a ringding and Ayurvedic tablets. It was their cousin Bublu's car, after a bout of speeding tickets, his license was suspended, and he parked the Nova in front of their building beneath the dogwood tree. He left the keys so they could move the car for street cleaning, and he came by on Sundays to scrub off the white flowers that littered the hood. The first time Dadi sat in the back seat of the Nova, she huffed, Marutis are nicer. She would not sit in front, saying it was too close to evil Asura face, 
and pointing to the bulging headlights. She had come from Bombay for June and July to look after her granddaughters. Her son, Kumar, and his wife, Mary, were visiting relatives in Bangalore. They had left the rules of the household on the refrigerator under a Yosemite Sam magnet. Number one, no driving. Number two, no sweets. All were in agreement that numbers three through twelve were irrelevant. Since the rules did not specify, the girls ate no sweets and Dadi did not drive. Rita had her learner's permit and took her sister for spins around the neighborhood, but only after Priyanka swore, crossing her heart, not to sing. They drove by their father's store, Rita smoking like a demon in lipstick and checked that Bublu, the boss till August, had remembered to turn off the lights. Kumar was particular about his electricity bills. During that thick, hot summer, Priyanka's senses deceived her into hearing the clang of goat bells in Kalyan camp. Their father had told them stories of his childhood there. She tried to interest Rita in playing refugee and tied a bell around her own neck, mewling like a starving cat. Her sister was bored by the game and sat on Priyanka until she agreed to play gin rummy instead. They lived on the first floor, no stairs to lug the groceries up, but the slamming of the building door percussed their days. The noise did not bother Dadi. She was partially deaf. When she watched television, the Karyatises, who lived next door, banged on their shared wall and cursed in Greek. Dadi turned the volume up and lectured the girls on Jimmy Carter and the oil embargo. No more auto, she said, wagging her finger at them. Take the subway like good citizen. The sisters wagged their fingers back, saying, Okay, no more sweets, at which time Dadi lost her ability to understand English. In between singing lullabies to herself, Dadi talked to the television. Iran, she said to it. What do you know of Iran? There was a Persian family on the news whose house in Deer Park had been looted. See, they look like us, she said. She instructed the girls to yell, Jule Jule Lal, if any kafirs came to the apartment. Then she would know to dial 911, also magneted to the fridge. If bad people enter, you must kick and bite she said, baring her teeth. Priyanka nodded. Don't worry, we will. She thought of her father's stories, of the blood and fire of his last days in Sindh. The girls did not tell their parents, who called once a week, when they found the empty urine container Dadi was supposed to fill. Instead, they made iced tea in the gallon jug and brought it outside to drink on the stoop. When the good humor man came by, Dadi sailed out in her white sari and ate half an Italian ice. She saved the wooden paddle and used it to stir her before-bed tea. Their parents had said to never let Dadi take sugar, even in her tea, but when the girls reminded her of that, she moaned, I have lost my sindri. One kilo of flour, that is all they gave us. At least I will be happy with the Kit Kat in my pate. The only concession she would make was to eat half of each sweet. She cooked massive dinners, every night a new recipe, and was forever complaining about the dullness of American produce. She felt sorry for supermarket eggplants and tomatoes and said, meaningfully raising her eyebrows at Rita, Bharat mein sabjiyan kushe. What about vegetables? Priyanka asked. In India, vegetables are happy, Rita translated. One Thursday, after a long puja for Viral Bhagwan, it was too hot for words. The Manhattan skyline, looking oily, pierced the haze. Everyone sat out on their stoops. 
The R train snaked and rattled under the sidewalk. Some Greek kids tried to open a fire hydrant at the end of the block. Mr. Wu, the grandfather in 2A, refereed a game of dominoes. Rito was wearing a new pink sundress. It had a childish, elastic bodice, crimped with crisscrosses of white thread and straps that tied into bows at the tops of her shoulders. The Nova has AC, she said, craftily twirling an imaginary mustache. We could go for a spin to cool down. Genius, Priyanka responded. She asked if she could borrow the new dress, but Rita, brandishing the privilege of age, said no. Dadi did not feel well. Purple bruises covered her hands, and she walked unsteadily as though she could not feel her feet. The girls made mashed potatoes and wrapped a shawl around their grandmother. They put her in their mother's moccasins. She looked like she was standing in gondolas, slipped an Ayurvedic tablet under her tongue, and sat her in the back seat of the Nova. Driving up and down the streets, the girls sucked in their cheeks and made fish faces at each other. They blasted the air conditioning and squeezed the mashed potatoes from sandwich bags into their mouths. Dadi perked up, sang songs of Kishinchan Bevas, her feet propped on the window she insisted upon opening, her thin white braid whipping in the wind. At the north end of Astoria, they saw a movie theater. The sign around the marquee, lit by naked yellow bulbs, advertised a freezing interior. A girl with her name scrawled across her neck in diamonds sold them tickets to the longest movie. Dadi ate half a box of goobers. On the way home, in the back seat, she fell asleep. She said it was her best nap since she was a girl in her mother's arms. Call Mary, she told her granddaughters as they tucked her into bed. Call your mother and say hello. Gardening Gloves, circa 1980, Astoria, Queens. The gloves were green, the palms lined with rubber nodules that looked to Kumar like taste buds. Mary said they were good for grip. A narrow dirt plot stretched behind the building. The other tenants had no interest in gardening, and the landlord told Mary she could harvest the yard, an eighth of an acre more wondrous to her than the botanical gardens. She planted emperor tulips, a rhododendron bush with waxen leaves and lavender blooms. Her roses were robust, the soil around their roots pampered with a special treatment of ground eggshells and diced banana peels. Kumar named them after Mughal emperors, Akbar, Jahangir, Shah Jahan, the thorniest one, Arangzeb. Roses don't die, they turn into something else, Mary liked to say, as she arranged the yellow, red, and white petals on plates. Inside the apartment, cups and glasses burst with roses, some tight to the bud or frosted and festooned, some cut long and stripped of their serrated greens. The small tea roses, Mary decapitated and floated with candles and bowls of water. Priyanka's and Rita's drawers overflowed with potpourri, and Mary bottled rose water, left it stoppered by the bathtub, so Kumar could spill some in while he soaked. At the end of the season, she made rose-hip tea. Rita said it tasted greasy, but the idea of drinking roses delighted Priyanka, and she had cup after cup. Mary spoiled her flora. She made coffee, just for the zinnias, and managed to contain the bamboo along the back fence in a neat rectangular grove. She liked the way it creaked when the wind blew. A couple of rows into the bamboo, she tucked a small statue of the Virgin Mary and one of Shirdi Sai Baba. Despite Kumar's pleading, she refused to raise anything functional, no herbs or vegetables, nothing edible. She grew only beautiful, frivolous things. Kumar could not be in the garden if she was transplanting. 
The sound of roots being ripped, the separation of clustered flowers, upset him. He said it sounded like loss, like eviction. It's not natural to leave roots behind. That's why flowers put out so many, so some will survive, like the Irish and children. Mary rinsed her gloves at the garden hose and wrung them out. If you and my grandmother hadn't uprooted, we would have no Priyanka, no Rita. True, true, Kumar said. Still, when Mary transplanted, he stayed inside. Every summer, Mary trained Jasmine to climb a six-foot trellis. When the delicate flowers bloomed, Kumar took his plastic folding chair and sat, saying the smell of Mogra reminded him of Sikandrabad. No one was allowed to talk to him for at least an hour while he closed his eyes and wandered around his memory. Once, the four of them drove to the Rockaways on what Kumar called the Great Seaweed March. They piled out of the car, Mary in her green gloves striding over the sand, the ocean rolling and sucking at their feet, each carrying a black trash bag that ballooned in the wind. They filled the bags with seaweed they pulled from the water or found on shore, hulking masses of it, covered with pods, that Rita snapped all the way home. After poking holes in the trash bags and draining the salt water, the seaweed was dumped over the germinating sections of Mary's garden. We Irish take the sea seriously, she said to the girls, and use all it offers. It's an old Galway trick my mother taught me. It was Rita's and Priyanka's job to rinse the seaweed until the tang of salt faded. They taste-tested, dabbing their tongues on the slick leaves. Until the seaweed dried out, the backyard smelled like a beach. At the end of the bamboo grove was Mary's prized Japanese maple. The girls had dug the hole for it while their mother was on bed rest after her lumpectomy. She sat in Kumar's lawn chair, watching as they worked. Rita had been sullen. She wanted to go shopping with friends. Priyanka told her to stop sulking, and Mary said she could mold a better face out of hot poo. Then Kumar arrived back from a nursery in Hicksville. He waddled into the yard, carrying a dwarf Japanese maple, its roots bound in sacking and twine. He lowered the huge bulb into the hole, and he and Mary took seven steps around the tree, hand in hand, to tamp down the soil. Every fall, Mary waited with excitement until the maple leaves curled and drifted from the tree. Raking was therapeutic and brought her closer to the girls, like the day Priyanka came home from school, quiet. Someone had said she looked funny. Mary took her out in the garden, and they raked and bagged the dark, nearly black maple leaves scattered in a circle around the slender trunk of the tree. She told Priyanka to never be concerned with what other people said. She and Rita were Indian and Irish, a particular kind of American, and if somebody didn't like it, well, they could stuff it or come and speak to her about it. She always seemed fiercer in the garden. She defended the lilies from aphids with mail-order ladybugs, a red-winged army delivered in plastic cells. Her war on slugs was well-plotted and tied to her mood. Whenever Priyanka and Rita sassed her, Mary said, Gardenias don't talk back, and stalked off with a canister of salt. They watched her from the window, putting on her green gloves, kicking off her moccasins, opening the small tin chute on the Morton's container. She poured salt over the slugs till a pall of white crystals covered them. With satisfaction, she watched them ooze and hummed, Danny boy. The girls took to calling their mother Garden Moo. They spoke in a secret teenage language that infuriated Kumar and amused Mary. If Rita was feeling bold, she would moo at her mother, 
but it was an unsatisfying game because Mary either told her to grow up or mood back. At times, Mary stood still in the garden, stroking the velvety geranium leaves, listening to the bamboo creek, the subway underfoot. She thought of Kumar and how, when the girls were young and his store still a dream, she would run her green-gloved hands over his face. He said her fingers felt like ten licking tongues. They had lived in a one-bedroom apartment then and stayed up late talking about the future in whispers. Priyanka and Rita shared a bed, the pull-out couch. They slept on their stomachs, their heads turned to face each other, their small biceps touching. Neela Vaswani is the author of Where the Long Grass Bends, You Have Given Me a Country, and with Silas House, the middle-grade novel Same Sun Here. Unbound is made possible in part by the Bachelor's and Master's Writing Programs at Spalding University. The show is a production of WFPL, edited by me, Aaron Keene, and Gabe Bullard, with assistance from Joe Durso. Music for this episode was provided by Jubelson, Will Oldham, and Anthony Fossaluza. Our theme song is Patrons of the Arts by Brother Stephen. For more information, visit WFPL.org.